This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer. Serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. In many respects, hurricanes are the one thing that still strikes fear in the Cape Fear's residents. Even though we've gained hundreds of years of meteorological and architectural advancement on this region's earliest residents, we still live at the mercy of Mother Nature. Sure, we're in a much better position when it comes to preparing for destructive storms. We have radar that tracks their movement by the inch and building materials meant to put up a fight in even the most brutal winds and rain. We have evacuation routes and dedicated shelters. We even have an entire TV channel dedicated to telling us when, where, and how to hunker down. But even with those tools, we still live with the same truth that every Cape Fear generation has. Hurricanes will always be a part of our way of life on the coast. Mention names like Fran, Floyd, Hugo, and Hazel to longtime coastal North Carolinians, and most will be able to recall how each one affected them and their families. In these parts, everyone has a hurricane story. But what about the storms that weren't given names or intensely documented and tracked as those are today? The storms that exist outside our living memory that are often forgotten to the fog of history. In essence, what do you really know about the hurricanes that shaped the Cape Fear into what it is today? This is Cape Fear Unearthed the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and mysterious figures of southeastern North Carolina. I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter for the Star News here in Wilmington. This week, we're flipping to perhaps one of the most important chapters in our local history book for a look at the monumental hurricanes of the Cape Fear. Just in the past year, Southeastern North Carolina was beaten and battered by the wind and rain of Hurricane Florence, a monster storm that we're still picking up the pieces from a year later. Each storm that rolls in awakens memories for those who have weathered similar disturbances of the 90s or before, like Fran and Bertha. But for this episode, we're not going to relive the brutality of the storms in the recent past. Instead, we're going back a little further to the very first accounts of hurricanes greeting early settlers of the region. Then, we'll move through 250 years of history to chart the major storms that in some cases changed the landscape of this region, and certainly its residents, forever. What did they learn? How did they prepare? 
and how did it all culminate in what is considered to be the state's most devastating brush with nature? 1954's Hurricane Hazel. As always, I will share with you these stories as they have been passed down through history and told through legend. And then I'll bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tale to continue the discussion and explore whether or not history can be trusted. So batten down the hatches for this new episode as we trace the path of the Cape Fear's deadliest hurricanes from 1713 to 1954. Hurricanes are one of those rare historical conversations that most North Carolinians can bring their own first-hand experience to. We all know what a hurricane looks like, and many of us knows what it feels like, having stuck it out through a few of them. But we actually know very little about the hurricanes that crossed paths with the first Europeans to venture to the New World, and even those that surprised the settlers as they developed this region. A few sources cite written encounters with nasty hurricanes reaching back as far as the 1520s, when adventurers were still stumbling on parts of this region not yet sketched out on maps. Hurricanes are even tied to the efforts to settle Roanoke, the site that would eventually become the center of the lost colony. Now, I know that Roanoke is well north of the Cape Fear, but these strong storms would have almost certainly had an impact on the natives living in our region, and shows that this area's history with powerful hurricanes predates our foothold in the New World. The first true record of a hurricane affecting the Cape Fear comes in September 1713, when a violent storm blew through Charleston, South Carolina, and also battered the shores of the Cape Fear River. One account said the surge and winds were so strong that a sloop sailing boat was driven three miles inland across the marsh. Accounts of hurricanes in the Cape Fear are light for the next 50 years as it's developed, though anyone who lives in the region knows that those quiet periods are always the calm before the storm. A powerful hurricane made landfall near the region in September 1752 and went on to completely destroy the town of Johnston, then the seat of Onslow County. But perhaps two of the most influential storms to hit the region in the 18th century arrived just eight years apart in the 1760s. The first would blow in on September 23, 1761, and was so strong that it opened up what would become known as New Inlet, north of Baldhead Island, and near the passage across the Cape Fear River, known as the Hallover. In a powerful flex of nature's might, the inlet opened by the storm was a mile wide and 18 feet deep. Although the storm was no doubt brutal for the still formative region, mariners were grateful for the new entry into the river that didn't require sailing near the treacherous minefield of Frying Pan Shoals. 
the inlet would remain open for more than a hundred years, until it was filled in beginning in the 1870s with a dam known as the Rocks. Although it had been a convenient asset to the vessels, the inlet allowed more sand and silt to flow in from the ocean, making it as shallow as 12 feet in some places. That storm rocked Brunswick Town, but it would pale in comparison to the one that would roll through on September 6th and 7th, 1769. This would be the first well-documented storm to rake over the Cape Fear region, mainly because its unprecedented storm surge and rain also did serious damage to Newburn, which was about to become the state's capital. Royal Governor William Tryon wrote at length about the destruction in Newburn and in Brunswick Town, where the county courthouse was decimated and homes were blown from their foundation. In one report, he wrote, quote, In short, my lord, the inhabitants never knew such a storm. Every herbage in the garden had their leaves cut off. End quote. The storms of the 1760s also did a number on St. Philip's Church at Brunswick Town, which had suffered through a bitterly troubled construction only to have its roof ripped off by hurricane-force winds. The church's walls, which still stand today, were built three feet thick to endure the fury of such hurricanes, an early sign of architectural foresight from which the church has certainly reaped the benefits. After that particularly merciless decade of storms in the Cape Fear, Mother Nature gave the colonists a bit of a break as they forged their own kind of storm in the American Revolution. Even as the war was winding down, Wilmington and the Cape Fear would suffer through major storms in 1781 and 1783, although records don't detail the damage done. The region wouldn't see another major storm, or at least not one that was worth writing about, for many decades, but it almost certainly felt the impact of any storm that moved through the state. It's important to take a moment and think about what it would have been like to experience one of these storms during that period. There would have been no warning. A hurricane would have rolled in like any other storm, and only keen observers of tides, winds, and atmospheric changes would have been able to discern the power of what was about to bear down on them. Today, we have plenty of warning and time to prepare, but we still put ourselves in the path of these storms. In colonial and antebellum America, you would have had no choice but to weather them and hope for the best. If you think you live on edge during hurricane season, imagine being those residents, never knowing what was brewing on the horizon. Wilmington would see more recorded activity in 1830, when a storm ripped crops from the ground and dropped what seemed like endless rain, although it did alleviate the drought the region had been suffering through. Seven years later, on August 19, 1837, Rivers in southeastern North Carolina crested at record highs 
as one of three major storms to hit North Carolina that year, took aim at the Wilmington area. One source said that every bridge from Wilmington to Goldsboro was washed out or blown away, and the winds were stronger than anyone living had ever seen. Some meteorologists point to the storm surge churned up by the hurricane of September 1856 as quite possibly the worst the state has ever seen. In his book, North Carolina's Hurricane History, Jay Barnes said that this perfect tempest struck on a full moon and created such violent surf that there were reports of 30-foot waves crashing half a mile inland on the sound. The ferocity of the surge also forever changed the landscape of Wrightsville Beach, which was said to have been lush with groves of live oaks before the storm. The wind and the waves uprooted many of those trees, and the majority of the ones that remained are said to have died after being relentlessly inundated with salt water. That storm is referred to by some as Charlie Teagan's hurricane, because much of the debris that washed inland from Wrightsville Beach, from those oaks to the shambles of the fishing shacks, piled up across the sound in the local resident's backyard. After the Civil War, records on hurricanes become more commonplace and more detailed, giving a better indication of just how punishing these storms were for the state, and particularly the Cape Fear. On September 11, 1883, a brutal hurricane brought an 80-mile-per-hour wind to Southport that persisted for seven hours. Barnes said reports from the day claimed the trees in Brunswick County looked as though they had been frostbitten after being blasted with sea spray for hours on end. The frying pan shoals lightship, an alternative strategy to light houses, broke loose from its mooring during the storm and washed ashore on the banks of Myrtle Grove Sound. The storm produced newspaper accounts of intense flooding and demolished ships, the wreckage from which littered the shoreline. Dozens of people drowned in the flooding on land and on the doomed ships on the water. The hurricane caused 53 deaths in North Carolina alone, the most ever recorded for a storm up to that point. The busy hurricane season of 1899 would deal the Cape Fear region a storm that did its deadliest destruction in the early morning hours of Halloween. When residents awoke the next morning, many of those curious about how Wrightsville Beach fared hopped on the seacoast train and headed in that direction, only to be met with a shocking surprise. The train came to a halt when it noticed that the railroad trussle was warped and twisted, and in some places, the rails had been completely ripped from their pilings, according to the Wilmington Messenger. The surge whipped up by the storm had breached the island and pushed cottages, most of them empty for the off-season, into Banks Channel. Those who didn't risk their lives to escape in the night as conditions worsened had to be rescued by boat. The destruction was also felt through Wilmington and Carolina Beach, 
the wharves in downtown were overcome, and Carolina Beach's own rail tracks were pulled from the ground. In his book, Barnes details the tragic story of a large trunk drifting up to the docks in downtown Wilmington, full of clothes, coins, and papers belonging to J.W. Brock, who was said to have been fishing on Zeke's Island before the storm rolled in. He was never heard from again. Cattle was said to have been washed off Baldhead Island, and Southport's waterfront held the remains of numerous ships that didn't survive the beating. On August 1, 1944, a storm forced the evacuation of nearly 10,000 people from the resorts of Wrightsville and Carolina beaches, a maneuver that had to be conducted by 100 army trucks from Camp Davis. This storm would be famous for being one of the first, though certainly not the last, to destroy the Carolina Beach boardwalk. In a colorful bit of reporting from the Wilmington Morning Star, it was reported that the homes on stilts in Carolina Beach were left at, quote, crazy tilts, like the hats of drunken sailors weaving down the road, end quote. The storms of America's first two centuries all kind of blend together because they weren't yet ascribed with names that helped them stand out in history's memory. That would change in 1953, when the United States Weather Bureau, now the National Weather Service, began giving female names to the storms that reached hurricane status. Curiously, male names wouldn't start showing up until 1978. Humanizing these storms began just in time for the Cape Fear region to put a name to the monster that would plow through in October 1954. Her name was Hazel. Hazel is going to be the last storm we talk about in this episode because it marks a real turning point in the region's relationship with hurricanes. Really, Hazel is the first storm in the modern era of hurricanes for North Carolina, mainly because it's the one against which every storm that followed would be compared. It arrived at a time when the state was beginning an active period that would earn it the nickname Hurricane Alley. And Hazel would become the tragic standard for what a hurricane's fury can look like on our coast. Before Hazel even reached the United States and made landfall near the North and South Carolina border on October 15, 1954, she was a Category 4 storm that had devastated Haiti with 125-mile-per-hour winds, killing hundreds of its residents. The Weather Bureau issued its first warning to the Carolinas at 11 a.m. on October 14th, but at that time, the track kept the eye and the brunt of the storm offshore. Then, she took a northwest turn. When she finally arrived on our shores, Hazel brought with her the greatest storm surge ever recorded in the state's history. Floodwaters reached 18 feet above normal in Calabash, while the southern beaches of Brunswick County bent to the will of 150-mile-per-hour winds. 
Most of the structures on beaches like Holden and Ocean Isle were reduced to piles of debris. Oak Island reported 140 mile per hour winds, Wrightsville Beach 125, and Wilmington, fortunate enough to be slightly inland, reported 98 mile per hour winds. She took those unprecedented winds all the way up the coast and even as far inland as Raleigh. 100 mile per hour gusts were reported as far north as Maryland, Pennsylvania, New York, and Delaware. To give some indication of the conditions this region endured, the Weather Bureau's report out of Raleigh after the storm features this alarming conclusion. Quote, All traces of civilization on that portion of the immediate waterfront between the state line and the Cape Fear were practically annihilated. End quote. Additionally, the Weather Service reported that every pier along 170 miles of coastline was demolished. In Southport's major fishing community, all 20 of the shrimp houses were gone after the storm, and shrimp trawlers were washed from the water into town, leveling homes and flattening cars in their path. During the storm, more ships could be seen floating unmanned down the Cape Fear River and the intracoastal waterway after breaking free from their tethers. Wilmington's waterfront suffered damage and high floodwaters, but it was nothing compared to the beaches. Carolina Beach alone saw $17 million in damage, a figure unheard of at the time, and equivalent to somewhere around $160 million today. On Ocean Isle Beach, tragedy struck when a stranded group of 11 men, women, and children battled to get from the island to the mainland, piling into a truck that would eventually be swept away by the rising tide. Only two of the 11 would survive. One of those families involved had come to town to close the deal on their new beach house. As with most disasters, there was a morbid fascination that drew thousands of people to the beaches in the days after just to see the destruction. But you didn't have to make the journey through the rubble to see the devastation. Hazel's place in this state's memory has been solidified by the numerous photos that captured its wrath for every generation since to see. Similar to how the invention of photography made the Civil War the first war that Americans had to digest the horrors of, through inescapable photos from the battlefield, Hazel was something altogether life-changing to witness. Looking at the black and white photos today, it doesn't seem possible that this much destruction could have been done to a community in a matter of hours. That this much development and life could be blown away like toothpicks in the wind. Hazel would claim 19 lives in North Carolina, and injure hundreds more. The state as a whole suffered $136 million in damage, $1.2 billion today. Hazel's impact is still felt in this region because the memories of its destruction still live on. 
It's now been 65 years since she made landfall and changed the North Carolina coast forever. But she was hardly the first. The Cape Fear region has been shaped by hurricanes since it was a wilderness of natives. As much as we accept hurricanes as part of living on the coast, sometimes we still take their power for granted. Unfortunately, that's usually when storms like hazel blow in to serve as a reminder that Mother Nature operates on no one's schedule, and hurricanes in particular will always do whatever they want. Joining me now to talk further about Cape Fear hurricanes is a man who knows them all too well, uh, Jay Barnes. He is the author and he's a historian on hurricanes. He's written four books, including the book titled North Carolina's Hurricane History, which is now in its fourth edition. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jay. Oh, it's my pleasure. Now, should we be expecting a fifth edition of your book now that we've gone through a few more hurricanes since I think uh, the fourth one goes through Sandy now that we've had Florence uh, Are you preparing to do another one? Yes, unfortunately, um, there's always another chapter to write uh, when we're talking about our hurricane history. When my book first came out uh, back in the mid-'90s, it sort of dawned on me that I would forever (laughs) have a challenge of of coming back and and adding the new new chapters that that people want to read about as more storms roll through. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's never any shortage of hurricanes, unfortunately. Uh, right. So I, w- I wanted to specifically talk to you today about this because I, I read your book and, and the reason that I wanted to do this episode was really because I, I find it fascinating that, you know, we really have a living history of hurricanes after Hazel in 1954, which was uh, 65 years ago this year. But everything before that is kind of, uh, you know, part of the history books or we just don't really know much about it because before there was tracking, before there was naming People who lived in this region just had a different relationship with storms as they came into the coast. And I was curious, um, in the 17, 18, 19th centuries, how would people prepare for a hurricane? Could you prepare for a hurricane? Well, that's a great question. Uh, as you go back in time, uh, the first first thing to note is that uh, uh, the storms of the past, we don't have the detail that we, of course, have today to know you know, wind speeds and barometric pressures. And sometimes we may not know the, the direct path. We, we have to piece it together like a, uh, like a puzzle almost. Um, when you're talking about the colonial period uh, in the New World here in, in, in what is now the United States, uh, in the early days, we, you know, a lot of, uh, of the coastal areas of, of the nation, um, you know, there were, there were settlements, of course, in cities like Charleston and you know, Miami didn't develop until the late 1800s. So there are a lot of places that were relatively undeveloped. And so there weren't a lot of people on the land uh, to uh, write about or to record uh, what happened. Uh, it seems that uh, when I was doing my research, a lot of those early storms came from the logs of ships at sea. So uh, along the North Carolina coast and the Cape Fear coast in particular, you're looking at um, uh, a lot of those early hurricanes were documented uh, very often by the, the ships that uh, survived the storm, uh, and then we have the records, in many cases, of those that were lost at sea. One of the reasons why we're known as the graveyard of the Atlantic 
uh, off the North Carolina coast is, is of course, the tropical storms and hurricanes that have, uh, have, have had an impact on, on shipping all through the years. Um, but in terms of preparation uh, for a, a typical uh, a family or farm uh, in eastern North Carolina, there really would not have been much preparation, uh, and that's because there would be no way to know the storm was coming. Very often, uh, if a hurricane was approaching and, and getting ready to have impact, uh, the only thing that uh, those fishermen or farmers or, or shopkeepers could do was that they would, they would notice that the wind was blowing and the rain was coming. And uh, in a lot of cases, they had no idea that this monster storm was on its way. And it was, and adding to that, I would say that uh, the, the, the meteorology itself, the understanding of the basics of hurricanes, was pretty slow to develop. Hurricane meteorology, even well into the 1800s, was not well understood that these storms moved from point A to point B. Um, there's a section in my book where I talk about uh, Christopher Columbus uh, encountering uh, a tropical storm or hurricane. Uh, it wasn't until his fourth voyage that he uh, found himself um, you know, in the middle of one and, and lost a lot of men and ships at sea and wrote an eloquent letter to Queen Isabella about his his condition and it, and it, essentially what he said was, "I will never go back to that place." Uh, well, that was from his lack of understanding, of course, that hurricanes move about. It wasn't that there was just one waiting there for him, right? It was that longitude and latitude was a dangerous place to sail, so he he would avoid that area, and and that was you know again a lack of understanding that uh, that these storms are are dynamic and that they are moving across the surface of the ocean. And as much as you're talking about Christopher Columbus, you can even go even further in history. And you mentioned in your book that one of the theories about the lost colony is that they were swept away by a hurricane. So it goes all the way back in this whole state's history to see kind of the impact or the uh, influence of hurricanes. Yeah, exactly. And there, there are, uh, again, th- these are anecdotal for the most part. We have bits and pieces from the early history, but we don't know all the uh, the specifics of every storm. There are countless hurricanes, no doubt, that have uh, struck the North Carolina coast, maybe even some big and powerful ones, uh, for which we really don't have much of a record. And again, a lot of it goes back to um, who was there to witness it, to record it, to write about it. Uh, in fact, a lot of the early work I did in, in my research, uh, you know, it would be newspapers in Boston or Baltimore or New York that would write about a storm that was affecting the Carolina coast. So we do have some record of some of those early early hurricanes, but uh, for the for the most part, uh, as I was doing my research for a lot of the, those uh, those storms of that period, quite off, often you could count the number of wrecks on the North Carolina coast, and you could gauge to some degree uh, what kind of intensity that storm might have had. You know, we think about kind of hunkering down on the coast these days, but those, uh, you know, men and women who were living here, one didn't have protection. And then if you were on a ship on the actual water, I imagine the brunt of these storms was just kind of unbearable. Well, yeah, if, if you were, you were lucky enough to survive it, there, there, there are a lot of, there's a lot of story there that, uh, is quite compelling. And it, and it just reminds us how, um, the, the location where we are in North Carolina, jutting out into the Atlantic, and uh, really from the Wilmington, Cape Fear area, all the way up beyond Cape Hatteras, uh, is really one of the most uh, hurricane-prone parts of, 
uh, the United States. I think North Carolina ranks third in the nation in the number of landfalls, the ones we know about, but that historically has been the case as well. And, and I would add that there are, you know, scattered throughout my book, I tell a few other stories about preparations uh, during this period. And w- one of them that comes to mind is that along the coast, many of the older homes uh, still are still around, you know, some built in the 1700s, 1800s. And people might ask, well, we've had all these hurricanes. How is it that these houses are still here? And a lot of them were built um, with some understanding of the ways of water. Uh, a friend of mine on Ocracook, uh, uh was in his home that his great-grandfather had built. Uh, and he showed me that on the first floor of the home, in the corner of every room, there was a hole drilled in the floor with a cork in it. And when the storm would approach, they would simply go around and remove the corks to allow the water to come up inside their house. Wow. Because if they didn't, then the house would lift up with the waves and float away. And that's, of course, that's going to destroy the home. So just by letting the water in, uh, it would stabilize the pressure and keep the house in position. And might make for a muddy mess, but once the tides recede, they'd clean things up and go back to uh, to their normal life. Um, and that was another question I had of, you know, as you know, today we prepare our homes, we build our homes to kind of withstand hurricanes. Um, and was there any protection? But it sounds like, you know, even back in those days, there was efforts to kind of combat this uh, universal truth that this region was going to get hit by another storm eventually. Yes, but I, I would also add that there were, unfortunately, a lot of places and, and a lot of communities. Um, they really didn't have any anticipation or understanding that they were vulnerable. And so I'm sure that countless homes as well as, as uh, you know, barns and warehouses and, and buildings of all types uh, were damaged through the years. What was the impression of these storms, you know, in your research? And you've read accounts of, of different people kind of, you know, telling them about them through newspapers or through diary entries or through letters. Um, what is the impression of these storms for residents? I mean, at one point you say that um, one particular storm, people thought that it was punishment from God. I mean, not knowing it's coming and, and not really having a institutional record of what hurricanes can do like we do have today. Um, these storms, when they came out of nowhere, probably were terrifying. Well, there's no question about that. And, and of course, um, I, I think that the Everyone's belief system, you know, comes into play, and, and that, that certainly was a factor. There, there was a, a lot of prayer, uh, for sure, in eastern North Carolina, before, during, and after. Um, people who lost their livestock, who lost family members, who, who really suffered through storms, uh, just as today, uh, it's, it's traumatic, it's life-changing, it can be, and uh, it's, it's a, a process where rebuilding, if you can imagine, um, the resources to rebuild after you know your uh, your home has been washed away uh, at, during the early period of time would have really been a, a major setback. There wouldn't be uh, you know there, there wouldn't be the kind of resources we have today to uh, where communities can help each other and you have you know FEMA and others that can step in and, and try to at least um, uh, make that process a little smoother. Uh, everyone had to, you know, pull themselves back together, and uh, that that was always a challenge for uh, small communities during the early uh, early periods of uh, of North Carolina's history. Now, one question I had, uh, just because I, I I think it's interesting, you know, we we are so 
Uh, we have such a habit of calling storms by the names that they're given, you know, by the Weather Channel today or the National Hurricane Center. Um, but that always wasn't the case. And when it first started, it was just uh, women's names. So, do we know why it was just women's names, and then they added men's later? Yeah, there's a there's a couple of different theories about that, and it, it's uh, the the one that's most likely though is that the naming of hurricanes um, it was recognized that it was uh, probably a good idea, and it started in the uh, in, during World War II. Um, the U.S. Navy uh, had meteorologists who were stationed on some of the, with the fleet in the Pacific, and in the Pacific there are large typhoons, and in in some cases, and particularly in 1942 and 43, uh, multiple typhoons at sea at the same time. And as the meteorologists were trying to keep track of these uh, and, and then radioing from one ship to the next, uh, it became difficult to, to sort them out. And so uh, some of these meteorologists started using their girlfriends' names uh, to try to associate with that. Well, at the end of World War II, uh, some of those meteorologists came to work with the U.S. Weather Bureau, and and informally they continued doing that. <laughs> then they they realized that it was it was a, an advantage to doing it, and for a short period of time they used a phonetic code like Abel Baker Charlie uh, to name hurricanes, and that didn't last very long. And they officially adopted women's names, I believe, in 1953, and uh, that continued uh, with women's names only. Until 1979, you might recall there was a bit of a women's movement at that time in the late 70s, and the World Meteorological Association uh, decided to begin alternating men's and women's names, and we've had that that uh, in place since uh, since that time. Um, and and it, it is the, it makes them easier to remember. Yeah. I mean, as years go by, and even when we think back on the storms that we've endured, uh, just as you said, uh, in the last couple of decades. Um, you know, they tend to, they tend to run together. You think, yeah. well, now which storm was that? And uh, I think the, the naming uh, certainly helps us to uh, uh, better keep track of what we've uh, what we've experienced. Well, in just researching this episode, uh, I've read a lot, obviously through your book and other accounts, that you know, there's these hurricanes of you know, 1761, 1899, and all these, but without names, just years, they do run together in your mind. I had to make notes and just kind of remember which one I'm talking about here because, you know, for better or worse, these names that we've given all these people, you know, it, it might be terrible if, if you end up being the one who has a hurricane named after you, but they do kind of really help stick in our memory about what happened for each one. Let's jump ahead to the 1950s um, once, you know, we do start getting these names because this this region obviously was absolutely affected by Hurricane Hazel. But we also, in that time, North Carolina got the nickname the Hurricane Alley, um, obviously something similar to Tornado Alley that you see kind of in the Midwest. But why was it such a destructive decade? Was it just bad luck? Well, unfortunately, I guess that is probably how you would have to describe it, because when you look at these patterns of hurricane activity, You'll, you'll see that um, things shift around, and there's not really any, um, th- th- any explanation for it that, I've, that I understand. I think that uh, you can go back to the 1890s, for example, and you're looking at something like 12 uh, hurricane landfalls in, in one decade. Uh, in the 1940s, it, all the activity was in Florida. Florida was under besiege with 
something like 14 landfalls uh, during the decade of the 40s. And then things shifted to the Carolinas in the 1950s, as you mentioned, uh, with so many storms. And then, uh, if you really uh, study it, you look at the 1960s and 70s, and we had very few hurricane landfalls in North Carolina, a really strange period of quiet uh, that lasted for some 24 years. So there, there are... Um, there are apparently are some random patterns at play here, but there's not really any explanation as to why, uh, you know, what would cause that. Is it, you know, the, the jet stream or does it have something to do with rainfall in Africa? The atmosphere is so complex, it's difficult to try to build um, any kind of understandable pattern uh, from, from these, uh, these cycles of, of higher activity followed by lower activity. Well, if dealing with hurricanes, is, you know, if we know anything about it, it's much easier when you put a name on it. And so Hurricane Alley does have that uh, easy, punchy uh, headline quality to it. Yes. So Hazel was really destructive in this region. It's one that a lot of people remember. And I think a lot of people remember it now because there's still a few people who were alive during that time, more than a few people. And But I, one thing I found fascinating was I covered Hurricane Florence as it was coming in for the Star News. And what was so terrifying about it was initially it was going to be a Category 4. And it ended up weakening as it came in, and it came in as a Category 1. Um, but Hazel came in as a Category 4, and that's why you see a lot of that destruction. I mean, is that destruction still unparalleled? Or as you mentioned, um, there were other storms that you know might not stick out in our minds as quite as much as Hazel, but they were still just as destructive. Well, there there's several things to talk about here. First of all, um, we have to recognize we've been talking a lot about the early colonial period all the way up to today, but we have to understand that our, our hurricane record that we can rely on really only goes back to about 1850. Mm-hmm. So um, from, from for that period of time, from the middle part of the 19th century to today, Hurricane Hazel is the only Category 4 landfall we have in North Carolina. Uh, we've had some others that have been close, and we've had some others that have, uh, like Hugo, that was a Category 4 in South Carolina. Um, but Hazel is the strongest intensity hurricane to strike our state uh, since the mid-1800s. Um, now, were there others like Hazel or stronger in the past? Very likely there were. Um, but we do know that as a Category 4 landfall, you're talking about sustained winds of about 135 miles an hour, and the storm surge, the, uh, the, the, the lifting of the ocean, really, the rising of sea level uh, upon landfall there on the Brunswick County coast, all the way really from Myrtle Beach uh, up to uh, Topsail Island and beyond, that, that lifting of the ocean was a record setting. It was something like 18 feet at Calabash. It was 17 feet along Oak Island and Holden Beach and that area, and around 15 feet at Carolina Beach and Wrightsville Beach. So that's an unprecedented uh, rise in sea level that just was very devastating to all the barrier beach uh, communities. Fortunately, because Hazel struck in mid-October, and this was 1954, back in those at that time, most of those homes on the islands were uninhabited because they were just small beach cottages that were uh, not full, not year-round residences. Uh, today, of course, there are thousands of homes on these same islands that are year-round residences. And uh, so uh, the, da- the damage, as you described, was, was epic. It looked like a war zone. Uh, I'll take Oak Island, for example. 
Uh, Oak Island had 354 cottages on it prior to Hazel, and um, all but two were washed away. Many of them were swept off the island into the marsh on the back side, uh, the lee side of the island. Uh, the Everything was gone. There were no street signs. There were no telephone poles. Uh, the, the asphalt was lifted out of the sand. There, there was really not much left on the island after Hazel swept over. Um, but Hazel barreled inland as well, and, and as I wrote in my book, it came, you know, came right through Raleigh, 100-plus mile-an-hour winds um, all across eastern North Carolina. And in fact, Hazel continued to barrel forward with an, and accelerated, and by the time it got into central Virginia, it had a forward speed of 50 miles an hour. And what that means is that on the right side, the northeast quadrant of the storm is the strongest, so on the right side of the track, all the way up the eastern seaboard, you had 100-plus mile-per-hour winds uh, recorded in seven states. And to this day, the highest wind ever recorded at the top of the Empire State Building was 113-mile-per-hour gust during Hazel. So this was a storm that was a monster from the deep in the Caribbean and uh, in Haiti where it killed 1,000 people to the, to the Brunswick County uh, beaches where, as I mentioned, the storm tide was devastating. And then this inland track that just mowed down trees and barns and, and structures along the way. Uh, it's, it is hard to compare other storms. If you, you talk about Hurricane, um, some of the storms we've had recently, like Florence, that weakened. Yes, if, if Florence had come in as a Category 4, it would have been a whole other magnitude of disaster for us. As it stands, we still had $22 billion in damage, from mostly from flooding, uh, resulting from the heavy rains that fell with the hurricane. So every storm is unique. That's one of the central themes of my book, is that when you go back and you start looking at these, and if you try to compare one against the other, you'll find that each storm has its own unique characteristics about its size and intensity and the way it moves and the, the impact that it's going to have. Well, and, you know, Hazel was a beast. I mean, it's just kind of hard to fathom that now, even though we can see pictures and and uh, and just all kinds of evidence of just what kind of destruction she brought. It, it's still kind of hard to fathom now that we live through hurricanes, you know, like Florence. Um, I just uh, looking at some of these photos, you're kind of dumbfounded of uh, just what it would have been like to, to live through it. So Hazel is is the most recent example of that kind of epic disaster. Let's hope it's a very, very long time before we see one again of that magnitude. Fran was pretty close, but Fran was a Category 3, uh, did have similar impacts. And I know your listeners, uh, a lot of them will remember uh, Hurricane Fran very vividly because uh, it, it really took a similar path to what Hazel did in striking Cape Fear and then running through Raleigh. Absolutely. And to, to wrap up our conversation, what do you think this region, the Cape Fear region, has learned from storms like hazel i mean is it to build better stronger buildings to just kind of be mindful that these are likely going to come there's no kind of fighting a hurricane because it's going to come where it wants to what have we learned well i think what we i think my goal in in trying to pull together this history is to is to sort of shine some light on on what has happened in the past and maybe there are some things we can learn um, I will say that the, the frequency with which we've had storms, you know, with, whether it be Florence, Matthew, Irene, Isabel, Sandy, all these that we've had in recent years, and then going back to Fran and Floyd as well in North Carolina, 
our state has um, has suffered through so many disasters in the last 20 years that um, we have been able to fine-tune our um, our response and recovery efforts, uh, build partnerships between uh, government agencies, state and local government, as well as nonprofit agencies, churches, and others, uh, such that we're better prepared. Experience is a great teacher, and we are better prepared. The, the, the regions that are m- more concerned about are those who haven't seen a hurricane in a long time. Look at Tampa Bay, for example, um, did some some work down there recently, and, and those folks have not seen a significant hurricane in Tampa in more than a generation. And that's a very dangerous situation. So I would say that in North Carolina, uh, and particularly from an emergency management perspective, uh, we are better prepared because of the experiences we've had with recent storms. And, and hopefully that plays through uh, for residents and, and how you prepare your family, how you prepare your business. Those that uh, need to do pay close attention are new residents, people who've moved to the area, uh, perhaps from outside of the hurricane zone, that don't really know much about them. And I encourage uh, those listeners to uh, to really study up to better understand uh, what the threat is, not to panic and not to uh, fret or or you know feel like you have to pack up and move away. Uh, you know, Cape Fear region is a wonderful place to live and and to work. But I would say that just for preparation. And understanding is is uh, is really your best defense. Absolutely, and uh, I hope that 2019 won't be adding a chapter to your book. Let's hope not. <laughs> we uh, we would we would love to have another long period of quiet like we've had in the past, but you, you never know. Every year, you have to look at every hurricane season as this could be the year, uh, and so therefore, you know, take those measures to uh, to think about um, what you would do, where you'd go. Uh, who you would take with you, and, and, and how to prepare your home. Elevation is key. That's the other thing. People always ask me, if there's one thing I can do, what is it? And, and I always tell them two things, actually. One is to know the elevation of your home and the flooding history of your neighborhood. And the second thing is don't drive your vehicle on a flooded road in the aftermath of a hurricane. Over half of the fatalities um, of our recent storms in North Carolina have been people who drowned in their vehicles. It was true in Florence, it was true in Matthew, and it was certainly true in Floyd, where we lost 28 lives, people who were out in their cars on flooded roads. So that's the single most important takeaway to keep yourself safe, is don't drive your vehicle when there's water on the road. Yep, it's learn from the past, learn from from experience, as you said, and uh, prepare, because we are right now in hurricane season, and we're heading into what is the peak of hurricane season, so... You can do nothing but prepare, and uh, now's the time to. Absolutely. Um, Jay, thank you so much for coming and talking to me about uh, hurricanes in the Cape Fear. I would encourage everyone to go read Jay's book. You can read volumes one, two, three, or four, or not volumes, but editions. Um, They have a lot of the same information, but as he mentioned, he does update them with uh, more storms. So eventually, uh, Florence will be uh, in, in edition five, I imagine. Um, so I'd encourage everyone to go look it up and uh, Jay thank you so much for being here I really appreciate it my pleasure that's it for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed and the story of this region's history with hurricanes thank you so much for joining me we'll be back next Thursday with a new tale from our local history books until then be sure to share your thoughts on this episode on Twitter with the hashtag CF Unearthed. Or you can email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com.
Also, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories from the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each episode, and this week, I'm going to be sharing an incredible gallery of those photos I mentioned from Hurricane Hazel. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. And don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter, which goes out every Thursday. In it, I include a link to the new episode and any supplemental pictures or videos that I find in my research, all delivered right to your inbox. Sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com slash newsletters. As always, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearth was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing was done by Adam Fish. This podcast was made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next time, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. What you learn might just surprise you. you.